Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. This is Janelle, and I'm going to get us set up to listen to a Zoom recording of Dr. Pam Eisenbaum from the Eilif School of Theology as she talks to us about anti-Semitism, racism, and xenophobia, and how those things are showing up in the world we live in today. Before we get started, I wanted to give you a few announcements. One, Ryan is safely and fully moved to Waco, Texas, and was unpacked in just a few days. They are doing well and getting settled in. Second, I want to apologize to you for the sporadic nature of this last season of Brew Theology Podcast. That is my responsibility, and I haven't done a great job of it, and I'm sorry. So what I'm going to do is take a break for one month, and during that time, get everything caught up that's in our backlog. So when we start our new season in 2020-2021, we will have a lot of stuff ready to go for you so you can listen regularly to the Brew Theology Podcast. With that note, please join us for Dr. Eisenbaum. This is the first episode we're putting out from our Zoom recording of Denver Brew Theology. You will hear questions from our members in the Denver group. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Before we get started, I did want to let you know that today we will be talking about anti-Semitic tropes. And in this discussion, we will be talking about specific examples of how people talk in racist ways about Jews. So if you have little ears around, you may want to listen to this at another time. Thanks. Our hope at Brew Theology is that you are doing well during this time. Please wear a mask, wash your hands, social distance, and stay safe. Here is Dr. Pam Eisenbaum. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce our speaker. Pam Eisenbaum, and I've got my Superman shirt on, Pam. It's Manu oh, Ginobili do. right there. All right. Stuffing James Harden back in uh, the yeah. 2000, I forget whatever, because yeah. the years uh-huh. fly by, and I forget what year it was. But for those who don't know, Pam is not only a theologian, uh, she's also a Spurs fan. And so <laughs> I think the first time we had a conversation on the Brew Theology podcast, it was about two and a half years ago, uh-huh. and it was supposed to be a one-part podcast. And it was titled, Is the Bible True? It ended up being a three-part podcast. And so if you, think, if you think you know the answer to the question, is the Bible true, you're probably wrong. Because it's, it's hours and hours and hours, and it's even edited. But it's a great conversation, three parts. I think that's somewhere back in 2017 is when we released that one. And then she came back again, and uh, the title of that one was based on a book, Paul uh, Was Not a Christian, or Is Not a Christian, Was Is. And then I think the last one was Judaism 101. And tonight, as you all know, and you just found out this morning. So we're like waiting on pins and needles, but it doesn't matter because it's going to be awesome anyway. And the title tonight is Anti-Semitism, Racism, and Xenophobia, and basically about the biblical writers and interpreters getting things wrong throughout the years. And so uh, based on just all the elements in society, in our culture right now, uh, we feel like this is an important topic. And uh, so Pam had, had, I think she had scratched whatever she was originally going to do and then brought this to light and said, hey, let's look at this through the Hebrew and the Greek and figure out how throughout, you know, throughout history, uh, maybe we can, I don't know if we can redeem it, but we, we can actually collectively start having better conversations together. So if you've not heard Pam before, you have the pleasure tonight and throughout the course of the night, like I say, if you have any questions, you can put them on the chat and we'll ask them later. Uh, so... Pam, 
I'm trying to find you on the screen. There you are. I see you. <laughs> Looking at all these faces here. I'm here. We're going to give you the mic for the next, as long as, long as it takes. And then we'll finish tonight at 930. Uh, so we'll have time for Q&A during that time. But yeah, you have the floor and talk away. Thank you uh, so much, Ryan. Um, I have a lot of affection, as you know, for this group. So um, I was looking forward to being with you all. Uh, you might be scaring people away <clears throat> who haven't heard me before, Ryan, though, when you talked about the hours and hours and hours of talking. Can I just say in my defense that at the first meeting, the podcast meeting, um, you told that story because you were thinking about the Spurs. And part of the problem was you had the Spurs game on a lovely large screen television, which I didn't have. And uh, that's the first time I, I met you in your home and I didn't know you were a Spurs fan then, but the game was very distracting for me. So um, I could have probably been more succinct, but so let me say something. I hope we may do some Q and A along the way rather than just separate this evening into me talking and uh, talking and talking and then waiting till uh, we get to your questions. Because um, there's some things here where there's no right or wrong answer. I have lots of information to impart, but there are issues I want to talk about for which there's no simple um, like answer, no, no simple right or wrong, no quick fix, um, things that I'd like to ponder with you. What I want to begin with is I had the good fortune of telling you about some of my students this term. So I just we just concluded um, teaching spring term at Isla School of Theology where I teach. And I taught introduction to Judaism, something I haven't taught for a very long time. And in the course sort of ends up in the last weeks with my uh, with our covering anti-Semitism, the Holocaust and things like that. And almost all the students did their final projects on something to do with anti-Semitism. Three of my students are Lutheran. And I don't remember what week we were in. I was, this was a very small class. It was an online class. It was meant to be residential. People drop, you know, it was kind of chaotic. Um, but it ended up being just a group of six. So it was a small class. Half the class were Lutherans. And wanting to be Lutheran, at least two of the three for sure, wanting to be Lutheran pastors. So I would refer to Luther a lot, thinking this was something they were familiar with. And one student one day just said, um, I'm sorry, are, you're saying that Luther said bad things about Jews? Like, do you have a reference or what sermons did he write? I'm like, well, we can go to lots of sermons and things. But, you know, he wrote a major treatise called On the Jews and Their Lives. None of the students had ever heard about, they were all raised, they're all raised Lutherans as well. And so, in fact, one of the students did her final project writing a curriculum for the Lutheran community on anti-Semitism. And she made the point that though the Lutheran church has been really good about um, doing um, curricula and education and self-reflection on racism, um, there really in her whole life never been any kind of open candid discussion about anti-Semitism. So with that, and this one other thing, I won't bore you with statistics, but according to both the FBI who tracks these things and the Anti-Defamation League who also tracks these things, the number of anti-Semitic incidents, um, and if you're really, really interested, we can talk about what counts as an incident, but um, both incidents and violent attacks 
have gone up exponentially in just the last five years. They've just escalated. And as we know, um, our um, black brothers and sisters are um, getting gunned down in the street. And I suspect that's been going on a really, really long time. But in the last, whatever it is, six, eight, 10 years, with people who have cell phones and can video these things, we can see them for ourselves. But let me begin with, I'm gonna jump around a little. You remember the protests in Charlottesville, Virginia, a couple of years ago, almost three years ago now. Um, it was, uh, I guess, known, it was organized by those on the right. It was called a Unite the Right rally. And it actually turned violent and resulted in um, the death of um, one person and several injuries. But it was largely, um, if you remember, a lot of what was in the news at that time was the issue of um, Confederate monuments and statuary and that sort of thing. And so there had been debates, of which there are a lot in the South, and I certainly don't know a lot about these, but the protests were sort of garnered around sort of, you know, white nationalism, but under the guise of we want to preserve these historic monuments. Well, these groups... It was a constellation of different affiliate, loosely affiliated white nationalist groups. Um, have several slogans they will shout out when they get together. And one of them they shouted out was, uh, you, and sometimes, which then became Jews, will not replace us. It was caught on video, and some of you may have seen that. Does anyone remember seeing that or hearing that? Is that familiar? Okay. So I remember, and blood and soil was another one. I, I remember thinking this, this was a, a white, very much American um, nationalist protest. It was the issues in the newspaper and everything else was about, um, um, you know, um, bigotry toward African-Americans and the history of the South, et cetera, et cetera. So the invocation of Jews will not replace us, I remember being incredibly perplexed about that. Where, why, why that slogan? They sang Dixie and they did other things that sort of felt like was more integrated into the theme. But that observation combined with the influence that a particular scholar named David Nuremberg has had on me, who wrote, who's written kind of what's now become the authoritative book on anti-Judaism, if you want the exact reference, I can give you all that later. But in the book, which is a big historical overview of the issue, he argues that so much anti-Jewish thinking is sort of like functions almost not even as an exercise in simply, um, what do I want to say, expressing historic um, animosities and problems and issues at the moment that a people may be undergoing. But in fact, Christians, so I'll speak in the particular here, but then this extends to the Muslim world, which he covers as well, have sort of used Jews and the hatred of Jews to think with in general, to think about um, what others are like and why we don't like them and what the problem is with them. And, um, and so, a lot of the tropes that are that derive that are anti-Semitic tropes, the ones that I think are generally directed at Jews, get 
recycled and repackaged in ways that then um, can very much serve racist purposes. And these things can get conflated. And one of the insidious aspects of this is that because a lot of Christian anti-Jewish attitudes do exist at a very kind of subconscious or unconscious level, and whether people are religious or not, there's things just percolate sort of like with racism too through the culture and we're not even aware of our bias. Are there really, oh, okay, sorry. Sorry, something just flashed on my screen. I'm easily distracted. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, so, <clears throat> so these things can get, can get recycled. So one of the issues, <clears throat> one of the stereotypes of Jews and by the way, I have this sheet. I suppose I'll, I'll flash that on the screen here in a minute, too, because we're going to look at some particular texts. That a lot of texts from the Bible, that whether you're a Bible reader now or not, um, several of these texts, um, passages, little snippets of text, are uh, just well-known. People might not even know they're from the Bible. And when texts or fragments of speech are well-known, they are often well-known because they come with a whole bunch of other baggage. So when you sing a jingle from something or other, often the imagery of whatever commercial got stuck in your head comes with it. And that might even reflect a cultural moment that if you sing the jingle and it was a commercial when you were six years old and somebody else was six, you can share a whole cultural world with somebody through singing a couple lines of a jingle. So what happens with biblical words and phrases, and sometimes it's not words and phrases, but stories or whole traditions that are associated with the Bible, um, are recycled in ways that serve these very insidious purposes. So at the moment, to just stick with the American context, and I was initially very interested in talking about a broader world context because anti Semitism is an even bigger problem in Europe right now, but focusing more on the American context, because I do want us to think about the intertwined nature of anti-Semitism and racism, particularly anti-Black racism, um, is that the alt-right, and it's hard to reduce all the different groups with all their, you know, idiosyncrasies and their particular complaints, um, uh, to, you know, to oversimplify them, but one of them, and I have this on the screen here, that we must secure a, a place um, for the white people, our people, and a future for our white children. Their white nationalist American movements see themselves, if I can generalize for a minute again, so forgive me for this, see themselves not as in control of things, not as um, whites are in the majority, they see themselves as victims who are potentially going to become really victimized. They're going to lose their country, their heritage, their everything, and they have to they have to fight to preserve it. They see life largely as a zero-sum game. So if others get a piece of the pie, they must be getting less of the pie. So the more 
what what many of us would think of as bringing more people into the party without necessarily kicking others out, they assume that some get kicked out if you bring some in. And so this idea of being replaced, the idea of the Confederate statues coming down and some other kind of monuments going up became symbolic for them of this kind of fear that they have. Now, what's interesting about anti-Semitism, really interesting to some of us, if you look historically, is that Jews have always been a teeny, 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 tiny percentage of the world's population. We're about one-tenth by, you know, demographers who produce these statistics. I'll just take it on faith. Um, Jews make up about one-tenth of one percent of the world's population. They make up about two percent of the American population. Yet the common stereotype is not a sufficient word. I'll just say the common place idea that Jews are somehow controlling the world and pulling all the strings. They control all the money and they're manipulating politicians and the media and all that kind of stuff. And that they're really doing everything to benefit themselves and controlling everyone else. And that Jews have always been trying to eliminate those people who are entitled to what they should have for their own selfish gain. That sort of image of Jews has persisted in Christian history. We could look at so many examples. And if you're really interested, I'll put, put some of them on the screen. But in so many places, if you were to look at Christian texts from the 4th century, the 6th century, the 8th century, the 16th century, it doesn't really matter, um, the way Christians write about Jews or enact laws against Jews, and there were a lot, a lot, a lot of laws um, and edicts made about what Jews could and could not do, that they're always written about as if they're on the verge of taking over. And so both Jews in both Islamic lands and Christian lands for most of the last 2,000 years lived in a denigrated state. In many cases, they couldn't own any property. They were banned from most professions. Um, their property could be seized at any time. They were expelled over and over again. And yet somehow Christians perceived Jews as just always on the verge of taking over. <laughs> and so Nazi Germany and Nazi propaganda takes hold, it's, it's one of the most, for me, irrational stories in history, on, on things that were largely, you know, talk about alternate facts, just things that were just really made up, um, that Jews controlled all the money in Germany, or Jews were capitalists, you know, um, just to give you an idea of how irrational a lot of Nazi anti-Semitic stuff was, it's often self-contradictory, partly because it's not rooted in any historical reality. So Jews were both seen as they're the capitalists who have all our money and they're controlling all the banks and um, they're, they're basically stealing from you. And at the same time, they're Bolsheviks and communists and they're undermining our government. I mean, these things are just rampant throughout Nazi propaganda. Jews are effeminate, they're not, you know, they have wimpy bodies, they're sort of ugly, et cetera, et cetera, and yet they have the ability to take over the world. So there are lots of these other kinds of contradictory things. So often stereotypes are rooted in some kernel of reality about something. 
there were a lot of things that in Nazi propaganda that was just wildly made up and people acted on them. And somehow for much of the German population and then much of the European population, they felt that they were the victims. Here's the great irony of history, six plus million Jews killed in concentration camps. And the propaganda the whole time was we're threatened by the Jews. So the idea that, uh, not the idea, the reality that our country is what, just a few years out, we will be, whites will be, I think they call it a majority minority, right? That will be the biggest people group, but not more than 50% of the population. I think that's what that means. And so that is going to become a reality. And somehow for white nationalists, to be white is equated with also being a majority. So that fact somehow feels to them like they're inevitably going to be oppressed and are already oppressed. Their propaganda often talks about how all the jobs are taken by, um, you know, blacks and Asians and Hispanics and all those kinds of things. And it doesn't matter. You can show folks all kinds of statistics about, um, how much benefit whites still have in our current society. Arguing with people on facts doesn't work in this kind of thing, right? Okay, so I just simply wanted to make the point that with a lot of what we see on TV and right now, the, the biggest and most heart-wrenching and difficult and challenging, you know, the angst that I'm sure all of us are feeling as we watch these horrific videos and watch yet another um, black person gunned down, it seems to me that it's still worth thinking about anti-Semitism and anti-Black racism together in light of the scholar Nuremberg I mentioned and some of the rhetoric that turns up in unexpected places. So I'm a biblical scholar. Let me just start by showing you an illustration, I mean, a picture of a parade at a carnival. This is carnival, I think, two years ago in Belgium. And this affected me personally in ways that surprised me, frankly, because I'm someone who has written about and researched the history of anti-Semitism for a long time. And I've seen lots of horrific images and you kind of get, you know, immured to them. Uh, you know, you, you sort of get vaccinated over time and I don't get as affected. But when I saw this particular image and read the story about it, I was horrified. Did anyone else happen to see this story? Of course, I can't see you if you're nodding or no. Okay. So I wouldn't, it didn't get a lot of press when I, I can't even remember where I first came onto the story, but I was so shocked at this image. I even thought it might've been a made up, a Photoshopped thing. So carnival in Europe is a really, really big deal, even secular Europe. Uh, there are parades and lots of drinking and all, you know, it's a big party, sort of like it is in uh, New Orleans. In Brussels, there's this really big parade. And this organization, this Moulin, usually has a float in the parade. The entrance fees for the parade to, you know, enter a float apparently went up a lot this year. And they wanted to protest what they felt was sort of um, gouging in the fees. And the way they decided to express that was with this float. And here you have two Orthodox Jews the, the payos indicate, uh, the payos are the things on the sides of their heads, that these are Orthodox Jews, and you can see they have these caricatured features. You might also notice, um, can you see my cursor, there are mice or rats 
around them here. In Nazi propaganda, Jews were compared to vermin frequently, or sometimes even portrayed as vermin in cartoons and things like that. They're sitting on bags of money here. And I was so, I realized Carnival pokes fun at people and does all this stuff, but this was, this was something you know, fashion and the colors aside, this is something Nazis could have produced. I could easily picture this in 1936 um, in Berlin. So when Jewish groups saw this and protested um, to the mayor, to this Mullen, to all these folks, nobody saw any reason for offense whatsoever. Um, the group just said, we wanted to protest that, you know, we were getting gouged. And so, of course, for Jewish groups, the question was, well, why would you express your protest in the form of Jews? By the way, there's like 14 Jews left in Belgium. I mean, the Jews aren't in control of the parade or how much the fees are or, you know, if, if you wanted to protest this, you'd maybe take, you know, ridicule the organizers, the mayor, I don't know, something. But um, it comes out as Jews because their instinct was... So I don't even necessarily want to call this group, you know, raging anti-Semites or anything. They literally didn't understand why this would be offensive. So I want to talk about, <clears throat> let me move to the, to the Bible. And it's not as if every Jewish stereotype um, or every racist idea of any kind derives, can, can be traced back to a biblical passage. Um, but often you do find the seeds of these things in the Bible. So for example, the connection between Jews and money, you, I'm sure, well, I shouldn't say you for sure. The Christians in the group who've um, uh, studied their Bible at all know that in Matthew's gospel, um, Judas um, uh, is paid 30 pieces of silver for betraying Jesus and is, you know, portrayed as, um, there's a sort of greed, I'll sell anything for some money. So the money issues and Jews being associated with money comes from many things in medieval tradition and whatnot, but often it was proved, um, Christians could prove that Jews were obsessed of money, not by giving you arguments in the current moment, you know, Jews own 16% of the banks or something like that, but by appealing to scripture to prove that the character of Jews was embodied in scripture. So scripture is a complicated thing, um, but I want to give you some illustrations and talk about some ways in which not only is there baggage with how we read things, but as I said to uh, in whatever I sent to, I think Ryan and Rob and um, early and Janelle earlier today, um, often biblical translations, preachers, and whatnot, make the Bible more anti-Semitic and racist than it actually is, which is, you know, really saying something for people where we're supposed to have consciousness about these things. But, okay, so I wanted, um, I'll start with a very simple passage, because it's just really two verses, really one verse, and, um, and it's a complete Man, complete mangling of a translation. So let me just read you. This is from Paul's letter to the Romans, which is important for Jewish Christian relations and attitudes toward Jews in general. Um, but that's broadly for another talk. But in the, this is the, the 
first part of it there, the NRSV translation reads as this, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their ancestors. Now, one reason that I'm going to quibble with this translation here is that this phrase, they are enemies of God, for reasons we're going to see in a moment, this idea that Jews are literally the enemies of God is one you can find on all sorts of neo-Nazi Christian sites. Um, in the most extreme versions, we'll see Jews are portrayed as demonic. I'll show you in the Gospel of John thing when we look at that in a moment. But so the enemies of God is the phrase I want to capitalize on here. Now, if we were reading this in a study Bible, there'd be a little note after the word God, you know, a little letter A or a number one. And if you then read the note, it'll say the words of God are not found in any Greek manuscripts. Any. We have like almost 6,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. The words of God are not found in any Greek manuscripts. So I don't know about you, but the first question would be, why add biblical translators generally are loath to just randomly add things. So why would they add this? Well, it's a slightly awkward grammatical translation, but I mean, um, construction, but not that odd. I think all Paul is actually saying here is that what they're enemies of is enemies of the gospel for your sake. And in the larger context, if this were like a Bible study on Romans 11, I could explain this at some length, um, but I won't subject it, you to it now. Essentially, in the context of Romans 11, Paul is talking about his own ministry. And gospel for Paul, the word gospel literally means the proclamation, the preaching that he's doing about Jesus. And Paul talks about how the Jews are resist his message. They don't get it. They oppose him. And he's sad about that, he says. He's sad about that. So that's what he's been talking about. So all he's saying here, what makes the most sense, is they oppose his message. But he goes on to theologize. Why is that a good thing? It might be a good thing that they oppose the gospel. Um, and because if all things are working to the purposes of God, there must be a reason for this. And he says, again, in the larger context, this gives you, i.e. you, Gentiles, more time to hear the gospel, more time for God to embrace more people. So the fact that Jews are rejecting my message and protracting the time frame for God to act and rescue the world is to everyone's advantage. That's all he's saying. Because this stereotype, not even a stereotype, this idea was so embedded in Christian theology for centuries that Jews are either outside the covenant with God, opposed God, killed God, et cetera, et cetera. I think that baggage is with what are otherwise very good, very thoughtful, bona fide biblical scholars, fully equipped to make good translations, that they had trouble figuring out who was being an enemy of whom in this passage. And their working assumption was, oh, when we're talking about Jews, an enemy must be enemies of God. And there's a whole set of assumptions there. So I've given you my rendering of it there, which I think makes perfectly good sense, both in the chapter and 
Furthermore, by the way, if you read the rest of the sentence, it really makes no sense to say that Paul's saying Jews are the enemies of God <laughs> because he goes on to say this stuff about being beloved and the gifts and call of God are irrevocable. So the translators of the New Revised Standard have, as far as I'm concerned, really mangled that verse. Um, that happens a lot with Paul in particular. But okay, now let's, from the sublime to the ridiculous. So if you go on some of the most extreme neo-Nazi Christian websites, of which there are a lot, and some of them are really sanitized so that when you land on these sites, you don't necessarily know how, I'm just going to use the word evil, how, how just seriously sick they are. They're often designed to attract young men who might be, their parents might be sending them to confirmation class and they have to do Bible study projects to get confirmed or whatever the case might be. And they go on the internet looking for some information. This is what these groups hope. And they'll be able to lure in um, young men, young white Christian men. So one of the most difficult, and I know folks like Ryan and others will know this passage from John very, very well, because it's um, the most troubling and often turns up frequently, particularly in um, violent incidents. And as I'm going to mention in a moment, including Dylan Roof quoted something from this. If you remember, Dylan Roof isn't someone, he's the one who who went into the church in Charleston. In any case, so he's in an African-American church, guns down these people, cites an anti-Semitic passage. <laughs> Again, we have the, it's sort of like in Charlottesville where people, where the issue was um, the South, the Civil War uh, monuments, black, anti-black racism, and again, Jews will not replace us. So it's all conflated. Okay, so in this passage, in the Gospel of John, is a difficult gospel in many ways for those who care about the problem of anti-Judaism because it often just uses the phrase, the Jews, instead of talking about, say, the Pharisees or the high priests did this or the scribes and the Pharisees did that. It'll just use the collective term, the Jews. The Jews did this, the Jews did that. And the Gospel of John, by the way, is the favorite gospel to read at Easter time <clears throat> during Holy Week leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, we'll come back to that in a moment. In any case, the phrase, we don't need to read all of this. Um, so if you're interested, we might want to come back to it. You'll see there in verse 44, you are from your father, the devil, and you choose to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature. He is the a liar and the father of lies. You'll remember I mentioned Luther's treatise was entitled The Jews and Their Lies. So again, another way to demonstrate the Jews, all Jews, um, like are genetically programmed to lie. Okay, so this is a debate, and Jesus often has these dialogues in John um, that are a little bit different than they, they happen in the synoptic gospels and the other gospels. But so there's several plays on what's going on in terms of being who's a child and who's a slave, being a slave, being free, having a father, who's your father, who's entitled to inherit, who's not, all that kind of language is in there. But of course, all that doesn't get, when people remember just certain words and phrases like 
you are from your father's devil, um, that's what they remember. So when Dylan Roof did what he did, he actually says, um, the father of the Jews is the devil or Satan. He might have used the term Satan. He's clearly thinking of this passage, but it's in the second person, you, and Jesus, to be sure, is talking to Jews who are present. But somehow, and I'm not going to try to understand, understand Dylan Roof's mind. That's where you're all, I hope we get to talk about this. You'll notice that at the start of this passage that I've excerpted in verse 31, the audience that Jesus is presumably speaking to is the Jews who had believed in him. So it's not even some others out there, the Jews who had believed in him. So it's at one point he even says, uh, verse 37, I know you are the descendants of Abraham. He then later says, you're not Abraham is not your father. The devil is your father. It's clearly, I think of this passage a little bit like a sort of rapping contest where you, you sort of escalate in competition who's what, and you can kind of say, you know, you, your mama is sort of thing. So there's name calling involved. And it helps if one gives historical context to the Gospel of John. And you'd think. There are many progressive, very public, you might want to say pastors, popular theologians in Christianity right now uh, out there, and many of you know more than I know, but it's my students who often alert me to the things some of these folks say that perpetuate stereotypes. So one of them is here. I took Eugene Peterson's, he's a scholar and a Presbyterian or former Presbyterian pastor. And um, he made this translation of the Bible called The Message. And here's his rendering of 844. You're from your father, the devil, now capitalized, and all you want to do is please him. Maybe we could argue about whether this made it worse or not, kind of like the Paul passage. It sounds worse to me, but at the very least, he didn't make it any better. And his translation is really more of a par paraphrase, so he takes a lot of liberties with the text. So it seemed like this would be a good opportunity to kind of color the text in a way that reflects the, the kind of historical circumstances and the nature of the rhetoric that's flying back and forth. That Jesus isn't literally trying to do a theology to prove that his Jewish, the members of his Jewish audience are literally descended from Satan. I think the author of John, however mad he might have been at some of his fellow Jews, I would be willing to gamble a lot of money that that is not what the author was trying to say here, okay? So, but none of that can come, gets a chance to come through. Okay, there's also this phrase that occurs, the synagogue of Satan, I just kind of threw that in that, Re Revelation 2.9. Okay, so until the mid 20th century, um, I don't recall now when it becomes official church doctrine, but the Jews were understood, you've certainly heard the phrase Christ killers, I'm, hopefully you've heard that somewhere along the way. That's what a lot of Christians called Jews because they were understood to be responsible for crucifying Jesus. So this became church doctrine at some point, I don't know exactly when, it's called the doctrine of deicide. And it meant literally, it was understood that the Jews killed God. That's also partly why they're connected with Satan, because the obvious opponent to, to God is Satan. 
So this is sometimes also called um, the blood guilt. Okay. So the passages that were typically cited, there were several. One of them is from um, Matthew 27, 25, his blood be on us and all our children. This happens to happen when uh, this, this occurs in the gospel story when Pilate has a couple of different preachers, Jesus, Barabbas, and Jesus of Nazareth. And he asks the crowd, which one you can let one of them go free and I'll crucify the other one. And the crowd, bloodthirsty, wants Pilate to kill Jesus. And um, Pilate somehow knows Jesus is really innocent, being the mensch that he is. And he doesn't want to bear the guilt, but he gives into the crowd. And then the crowd, it says collectively that they bear responsibility for this, this blood. And the church took them quite literally. So we can then point to other passages, including in John 2, but I've got some, uh, the one from Matthew 23, a few chapters earlier than the one from 27, where Jesus is really giving it to um, the Pharisees and others who are there. And there's some hellacious rhetoric here as well, um, such as you murdered the prophets, et cetera, et cetera. And in, in verse 33, you snakes, brood of vipers, how can you escape being sentenced to hell that you've always killed, you know, crucified all your prophets, etc. Okay. So, and there's also a mention of bloodshed on earth and the blood of Abel, you know, Cain killed Abel. So Jews get associated with being Cain, etc. Okay. So Jews have this, or understand, have this blood guilt on their hands. I'm going to refrain from the temptation to tell you the story of the blood libel, but should you want to know more about that, I'm willing to talk about that too. Okay, so let me talk about another tradition, the wandering Jew. This may not sound so sour to all of you folks. Um, I don't even know if this line will sound familiar from Deuteronomy 26. A wandering Aramean was my ancestor. Um, he went down to Egypt and lived there as an alien few in number. And there he became a great nation, mighty and populous. Okay, so it's a sort of kind of way of capturing the essence of the story between Genesis and Exodus. This idea of Jews being a wandering people becomes an understanding of Jews being landless and not entitled to have real property as a sort of doctrine of God, because this is what God says you should say, a wandering Aramean was my ancestor. And when we get to the modern era, the age of nationalism, where peoples thought it was their destiny to construct their nations, the German Volk, for example, Jews, the case is made that precisely because Jews were a landless people, that they were destined to be parasitic on other nations. So again, in, in Nazi propaganda, I don't know, I've never seen a case, now I've not really gone looking, but I've never uh, seen a place where Deuteronomy 26.5 is invoked, but this idea of them being a wandering people is just kind of assumed. It's a given. It's a historical given. Under interpretations there, I thought I'd add this because um, this is a, something more subtle uh, that's, I think, worth sharing with you. This is um, from I believe it was originally a speech, which was then published. It's a, a speech by Desmond Tutu called Why Christians Must Oppose Racism. has a lot of beautiful, inspiring insights and just 
statements to get behind. But there's also this sentence, and I, yeah, okay, I'll just read it. It is interesting to note the tension in the gospel according to St. Matthew between a Jewish particularism and the broader universalisms inherent in the gospel. Jesus can say that he has been sent to none but the lost sheep of Israel. And that's true. There's a story where Jesus does say that in Matthew's gospel. And yet the gospel, which records those words, ends with this commission. Go, therefore, to all nations to make them my disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, there's a longstanding understanding that Jews are clannish and particularistic, that they keep to themselves, they don't uh, really want to have anything to do with other people, and they don't really have a big theological perspective. They just care about their customs and their stuff, and they don't worry about anybody else. And so although this is not at all said stridently, there's a contrast being made between a form of what we might call Jewish religion or theology as being, you know, kind of confining, staying with one's own, and the broader universalism of, he uses the word gospel here, of Christianity and Christian outreach to others. And so this notion that Jewish particularity is a narrow form of religion to be contrasted with Christianity, which is a universal religion, not tied to ethnicity, that one is bad, or at least one is less good, let's put it that way, and the other is better. Um, as a side note, um, a friend and colleague of mine, in a talk he gave, he's thought a lot about Jewish-Christian dialogue, Jewish-Christian relations, both historically and in contemporary settings. And he once said this in comparing Judaism and Christianity. He said, you know, Christians are really good at reaching out to others, the care for the stranger, extending hospitality to those they don't know, you know, outreach to language. And it's a, it's a sort of a virtue. It's a brilliance of Christianity. And the virtue of Judaism, on the other hand, is really kind of just knowing how to leave people alone. And he said, and both of these have a sort of dark side. He said, the Christian sense of outreach and that universalism and all are welcome kind of thing, in its, its dark side is to become imperialism and a desire to envelope all other peoples into myself and make them like me. And the dark side of the Jewish knowing how to leave, you know, how to live and let live and let people do their own thing is xenophobia, is that I'm not going to look beyond my little world. But of course, and so I thought that was a fairly insightful uh, way to look at the two religions in a broad sense. But of course, in truth, both of them have their particularistic aspects and their universalistic aspects. So anyway, I just wanted to that idea persists today among all sorts of people. I don't know if we need to talk about supersessionism, but there's another excerpt from the message here, Eugene Peterson. This is the opening to the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John, for those who may not know, opens with, in the beginning was the word. It's a very beautiful poem, actually. And it echoes uh, the beginning of Genesis, which also begins with, in the beginning. Well, in Peterson's rendering, He's removed all the resonance with Genesis by saying the word was first, 
instead of the language of in the, so if you were reading this, you wouldn't, it doesn't evoke Genesis at all. He just says the word was first, and then subsequently says we got the basics from Moses, and then this exuberant giving and receiving, this endless knowing and understanding, all this came through Jesus, the Messiah. So again, there's a sort of, it's not that this is some raving, lunatic, anti-Semitic passage, but there's a assuming this is, this was nice and pretty good and a first step, but Jesus, that was the real fulfillment of everything. And so he doesn't say anything to condemn Jews, but it's implicit in there that there's something lacking. There's something lacking with Jews and Judaism. So there's lots more places where we can find stereotypes and ideas about Jews rooted in particular places, either in the Bible or in translations of the Bible or traditions of the way people preach a passage, even if it's not necessarily how we have to read something. There's lots more of these I could share with you, but I won't. Can I just show you one thing though, before we go, since I made this slide, I, I went to the trouble of gathering all this stuff, stuff. So I do wanna show you this one thing. So remember I mentioned the wandering Jew. So if you've ever taken a, you know, history of Western, you know, history of Western Europe or that kind of stuff, you don't actually get a lot of Jewish history, even though all kinds of stuff is happening that Christians are usually doing to Jews. But in any case, there were a, a huge part of Jewish history. If we were, if, you know, if I were to give you a sort of Jews in the history of Europe course, is one Jewish expulsion after another. And so I just kind of picked in, in some online encyclopedia where I could get a lot of these. And I started to realize, oh, there's just too many. I just, you know, so let me just grab all the ones from the 15th century. And this idea that Jews might be granted some land by a king for a time because it was convenient for various sorts of political reasons. And then they just get expelled. And so Jews really do become a wandering people moving between all these different nations and forced to wander, obviously not by God, but by Christian rulers for one point or another. So I won't subject you to the Theodosian Code and various kinds of laws, but should someone be interested, we can look at those more. But I say we take a break and then come back. And if you're, if you're lacking in questions, I'll put questions to you. Thanks so much for joining the Brew Theology Podcast. This is part one with Pam Eisenbaum. We'll be back in just a little bit with the Q&A section from our discussion with Pam. And I hope you'll join us. Thank you and cheers. Cheers.